Look around. This is us, all right? So sing loud today, all right? To help help Catherine and I think someone else sing in just a moment. Hey, a few announcements I'd like to make and uh, prayer requests. Let's do announcements first. No evening services today for our students or adults. Enjoy your Labor Day weekend, Sunday evening with your family. Uh, Mr. Jackie, your Bible study, I think, starts Tuesday night at 7 p.m., David Jeremiah, without a meal, so it's not quite all that it used to be, but you're getting back into it, and we're grateful for that. If y'all have any questions, please see uh, Mr. Wayne. Thank y'all for, in the fellowship hall, I assume, is where you're going to meet. Also, this week, we are starting back things that we haven't done since March, Uh, Wednesday night adult study. Bible study in the fellowship hall. We're doing a study on the holiness of God by R.C. Sproul. We would love to have you come and join us. This is something that we were going to start literally the week that um, we suspended activities on Wednesday night because of the virus. I think Jeff Root has read the book five times (laughs) in his downtime since then. So we're looking forward to starting back. Wednesday night at 6, students and adults. The next Sunday morning, we will begin a children's Sunday school class. Erica, thank you for overseeing that. Uh, From 10 to 10-something-ish. And next Sunday morning, we will have communion at 9 and 11. And we haven't had communion in months. It's been too long. So what we're going to do as you come in... Each person is going to get one of the single servings of the cup and the bread. And then I will lead us. Deacons will not serve those in trays, but I will lead us all in partaking, you know, at the same time. So next Sunday morning at 9 and 11, we will have the Lord's Supper. And then deacons meeting at 5 p.m. next Sunday afternoon. Another thing that we had not done uh, in months. So if you remember, we were going to have a deacon election the Sunday after. Uh, or the Sunday that the first Sunday that we missed. Okay, prayer request. If any of you know Donna Holder, uh, Kim and, and my, especially Kim. Kim, thank you for your ministry to her. Kim's special friend Donna. Her husband Scott passed away Friday, and his funeral service will be three o'clock Tuesday afternoon. So please keep Scott Holder's family in your prayers. That funeral will be at Martin and High Tower with a visitation before the funeral. I think 1.30. Is that when the visitation starts, Kim? Okay, thank you. Also, Amber Ornsby continues to improve from her uh, bout with shingles and some side effects from that. Miss Johnny's granddaughter, Ellie Weeks, is improving. So, Miss Johnny, thank you for that good news and that report. Mark Butler is stable. We've been praying for him. Uh, continue to lift him up. Things haven't... Sorry? What did I say? Oh, did I really? Man, Mark Buchanan. There is a Mark Butler, but, uh, but I don't think he's, he's not in this condition. So we certainly need to pray for Mark Buchanan. And then uh, Billy Vaughn. Billy's about the same. So let's pray that God would continue to be gracious to him. Okay, any other prayer requests or announcements that I have failed to mention? Yes, and you just told me that. Mr. Joe Whittemore is not here today. He has hurt his back. So Ms. Judy asked for us to pray for him to improve. We certainly missed 
Missed him at nine, we'll miss him again. Eleven. Other, any other prayer requests or updates? Let's stand. Uh, great to have Jimmy and Pat with us. Uh, Jimmy, would you lead us in prayer, please? Good morning. Um, we're going to begin worship this morning with a little chorus. Uh, it's called I'm Crucified in Christ. I don't know if we've ever, we've done it at Glenlock since I've been here, but we sang it a lot at the church I grew up in in Carrollton. And um, one of the reasons I love it so much is I just remember we had a really cool, Shelly Jennings was my mute, our children's choir director when I was little, and she always taught us songs that were straight from the scripture to help us learn scripture, and this was one of them, and it comes straight from Galatians 2, 2, uh, 2.20, I'm crucified in Christ, therefore I no longer live, Jesus Christ now lives in me, so we're going to open up worship with that this morning.
Heavenly Father, God, Lord, may we be reminded of um, just the seed you've placed within each one of us. God, show us this week where it is that we need to sow those seeds, God. Lord, um, thank you for the reminder that, God, you will always fill us, God, and, and we are sinners, and we're always going to fall short, and we're always going to reach a point of being emptied, God, but you're going to fill us again and again and again and again, God. So, Lord, I pray that this morning you'll remind us of all the things in our life that, Lord, we just need to bring to you in shouts of praise, God. Lord, the things we need to say thank you for, the things that we need to be gracious and grateful for, God. Lord, just the many blessings you've bestowed upon us, Lord. God, in every season you are still God. And in every season you give us a reason to sing. Just some seasons we have to look for it harder than others, Lord. Thank you for that, that sweet, sweet reminder this morning, Lord. And as we open up the book of James, God, Lord, I just pray that you speak clearly through your word and that you use um, Pastor Neil, Lord, just as a vessel for us to hear from you this morning, God. Lord, thank you for being a God that lives within us, Lord. Thank you that I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And if there's somebody here this morning that's never accepted that precious gift of salvation, I just pray that today will be that day. We love you and praise you and thank you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated.
book of James, please, where we, week to week, have been taking a portion of Scripture and what James says and preaching it and applying it to our lives. Uh, as we just sang through every season, he remains the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's good news. That's helpful news because life certainly brings unexpected changes. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to read actually chapter 4, verse 13, before we get to the text today, which is 5, 1 through 11. And the reason is the beginning of verse 13 is the exact same phrase that's at the beginning of chapter 5, verse 1. And that shows us that there's a connection between where we were last week and where we are today. And that's the little phrase, come now. It is a very brusque wake-up call to those who are going in the wrong direction. As I said last week, we could interpret it with the NIV, and by that I mean the Neil International Version, of come on, man, you know? That's in verse 13 and verse five, uh, chapter 5, verse 1. So I, I introduced that to say the words and the warnings here are cut across the board for everyone, but there's a specific group of people in 4.13 and 5.1 that he seems to be addressing. And very brusquely, he is trying to wake them up to, to reality and to who God is and what God would have for them to do. So for those of you who were here last week, 13 through 17 is review. And then chapter 5, verse 1 is, okay, now that those are the facts of life, this is how we should live. So, 4.13 of James. Come now you who say, today or tomorrow we shall go to such and such a city, spend a year there, engage in business, make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills we shall live, and do this or that, but as it is, you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. So those are the facts of life. All of us are subject to these realities. None of us can opt out. We don't have that luxury, that privilege. And those realities in verses 13 through 17, we basically could say this sermon last week was preached in special dedication to 2020 because it's been that. James 4, 13 through 17 is especially dedicated to the year 2020. My knowledge is limited. My time is fleeting. My dependency is total. And my accountability is certain. My knowledge is limited. My time is fleeting. My dependency is total. And my accountability is certain. Things you can count on, like death and taxes. All right? And we could say, well, only God can judge me, and, and he will. So those are the realities. Well, now we're going to ask, today and next week, well, how shall we live then? What are we to do? And that's where he starts chapter 5, verse 1, 
come on, you know, come now. So let's pick up. Now we're into this week's sermon, finally. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted. Your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted, and their rust will be a witness against you. And they will consume your flesh like fire. It's in the last days that you've stored up treasure, or stored up your treasure. Behold the pay of the laborers. There's your Labor Day weekend text right there. The pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you and the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Seboeth or rather the Lord of hosts. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter, you've condemned and put to death the righteous man, and he does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Behold, the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and the late rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts. The coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. That's another thing that we've had the last few weeks, isn't it? There's one judge, one lawgiver, and it's not us, but it is God. It is Christ. So verse 10, as an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we count those blessed who endured. And you've heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings that the Lord, the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. Let me read that again because that's actually the title of the sermon today. The Lord, his dealings, the conclusion of his dealings are that he is full of compassion and is merciful father we thank you that not only are you judge but you're also our father and you're full of mercy and compassion in fact they're new every morning and they never fail so as we gather before your word today and under your word may it encourage us with your mercy and also may it convict and and transform us because of the discipline that we need and the, the holiness that you require that we fall short of. But you call us to progress. So thank you most of all for the mercy that allows us to be here today. Today is a gift from you. And we pray that with our time together now, we would make the most of it. And love you this morning with our minds and and pray that you would speak to us from your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay. I'm actually going to do something that you're going to like. And that I had three points today, but I'm only going to preach two of them. And for next week, you're going to have to be patient and get that one next week. So 
The reason I, I point that out is that there are three, I think, key words that we need to take from what James says. And these are biblical buzzwords. In other words, you hear these words and, and you hear these words preached and taught. And I think they sum up a lot of what James is trying to say. In light of what we find in 13 through 17 and the, the facts of life, you and I to, need to live lives of repentance, repentance, I keep popping the mic, my failure, y'all, to wear my headset correctly. I need to repent, right? Repentance, justice, and endurance. Repentance, justice, and endurance. That's what God calls us to in light of his coming judgment. So next week in 7 through 11, there's so much there about endurance. I'm going to be patient and we're going to put that off to next week because what we need to talk about today is repentance and justice. So what do you mean, Pastor Neil? Well, in verses 1 through 3, James apparently gives us a warning which should lead to repentance. A warning which should lead to repentance. Now, when I read verses 1 through 3, there is some really strong language here. Look at verse 1. He's telling the rich. Now, I know I'm going to make a point in just a second, but all of us relative to the rest of the world are materially wealthy. Okay? And we've got to remember James, in his context writing 2,000 years ago, compared to his original audience, we would certainly be wealthy. But he says, come on, rich. Then he says, weep and howl. He's calling them to crying and wailing. When you study this passage, it's the weeping and howling that, that people experience and go through when a sudden death has occurred. And so as I study this week, I thought of situations and circumstances where people have suddenly lost loved ones, and their weeping and their crying was so strong and so deep and emotional that they could not at the moment have a conversation until they gathered their composure. In John chapter 11, when Lazarus dies, this is the weeping and howling that, that, that takes place. So he's calling on the rich to express remorse and sadness because of what's coming Verse 1, your miseries are coming. Well, why? Because your treasure, what you invested in, is rotted. Your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted. By the way, he sounds a lot like Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. And we said from the beginning that James and Jesus share a lot of the same thoughts in how they present the, the teaching. Very similar to Sermon on the Mount. You could preach this from the Sermon on the Mount. But the rust is a witness against you, evidence against you, and will consume. Look at this. They're consumed by placing their love and their treasure in the wrong direction. Consumed like fire. And it's in the last days that you've stored up treasure. So, wow. Very strong language from James about a possible future if they do not examine themselves 
and repent. It reminded me of, remember when Jesus was with his disciples at, at, at the last meal and he says to them, one of you will betray me. And they all start looking at one another and saying, is it I? Is it me? Surely it's not me. That sounds horrible. I don't want to be the one to betray you. So they start doing some self-examination. I think that's what James wants us to do. And I think that's what he wanted him to do, them to do. He is wanting to give them a warning of a possible future so that they might look at themselves and say, "Why am I one of these people? And the reason that's important is our pride cannot see itself in the mirror, right? Your pride, you're the last one to see how prideful and how greedy and how selfish we can be. So it comes as a surprise to us at times that that we could actually fit some of the negative categories of Scripture. I put it like this to myself. I need illustrations. Have you ever been playing golf and you hear someone yell, four? <laughs> That's a warning, right? To get your heads up because a golf ball may be flying into your area very soon. So when you hear four, what should you do? You should look around, right? I mean, not only should we, when we hear four, look around, but, but if we hit a bad shot, we have a moral duty to yell four, <laughs> In fact, I'm thinking of a time when I didn't yell for and I had a slice and it went through a golf cart that was leaving the green ahead of me. And a couple of guys in their golf cart approached us as we approached the green and said, hey, you almost took our heads off back there. I'm like, oh, really? I had no idea. When I saw it slicing, I should yell for. So the, the minister of the word of God has a moral duty to If judgment is coming, my main role is to prepare us for judgment, right? And and judgment is is it's it's imminent. It's it's certain. The statistics are amazing. One out of one people, like we're going to die and we're going to face God. So James is giving this warning so that they will do some self examination. So here's what I want to do. I want to examine myself and see if I'm in the faith. For example, when you come across a passage like verses 1 through 3, you know, you're thinking, hey, this is for the people that are on the lifestyles of the rich and famous. You know, you remember Robin Leach and that, that show, Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. I'm Robin Leach, right? Oh, it's the top 1 or 2%. No, I need to stop and ask myself, in what way has God made me rich? How am I rich? I've shared with you before that there were some children in the neighborhood who had come over years ago to play with our boys, and I overheard one of the boys say to the other about us and our house, here's where those rich people live I was telling you about. I was like, whoa. Relatively speaking, we always compare ourselves to those who have more, and rarely do we look at those who have less. In what way am I rich? Not just materially, but spiritually wealthy. Physically, gifts and talents and resources. Do I see my material blessings as coming from God or produced by myself? 
Well, they all come from him. Paul reminds us, what do you have that you did not receive? Here's another question. What do I consider to be my ultimate treasure? Am I laying up treasure in heaven? Is is being rich toward God in my relationship with him primary? This warning is is a time for self-examination for us all. Here's another question I asked myself this week, and, and, and I stand convicted in it. How am I using what God has entrusted to me? Am I being a good steward? Because ultimately I'm going to be accountable to him. Here's another one. What's my attitude toward the wealthy? According to this passage, listen, we should never ever envy anyone, but certainly never envy the rich. It is dangerous ground. It's shaky foundation, and the Bible over and over warns us. So what is my relationship to to the wealthy like? Am I ever jealous of them? Am I bitter toward them and the providence of God on their behalf? Am I resentful? Could I serve the wealthy? Could I minister to those who have more with a gracious, kind attitude? I think this warning serves us with some needed self-examination. And then once we have examined ourselves, hey, none of us ever do all this perfectly well. Self-examination leads to repentance, turning and changing. Because by nature, I'm curved in on myself. That's what it means to be a sinner. So I must turn with contrition from what I know to be wrong in me towards what I know God requires. After all, the Christian life begins with repentance. Jesus and John the Baptist both preached repentance because the kingdom of God was at hand. Believe the gospel. So not just to be saved, but to continue to grow, I need to constantly examine my life in light of Scripture and its perfect requirements. Search me, O God, and know my heart and see if there's any hurtful way in me and lead me in your path was the prayer of the psalmist. So here's my point. We should take this harsh warning that James gives to the rich and specifically the wicked rich that he identifies, take it as an opportunity to go through the process of repentance so that we may experience his forgiveness his transformation, and his freedom. Use verses 1 through 3 to search your heart, or rather to ask God to search your heart. You know, as I read through this, I thought about the infamous Ebenezer Scrooge and Charles Dickens and his wonderful story about this greedy, grumpy miser If you think about what happened with Scrooge, he experienced a transformation. Remember this? I know it's not December, but let's work through it right now. (laughs) We normally save it for Christmas time. The ghost of Christmas past comes and shows him what he was. Then the ghost of the present shows him what he is. Then the ghost of the future shows him what's going to happen if he does not change. And that vision of what he will be if he continues on the path that he is 
transforms him to become generous and sacrificial and selfless. And thus we have the beautiful story of a Christmas tale. Or rather, you could preach the same thing through the, the Grinch, right? The Grinch, whatever. I'm, I'm getting way off track. Let's forget about that. But think about Zacchaeus and the transformation he underwent when this wee little man went home with Jesus. And what we don't know is the conversation that went on between Jesus and Zacchaeus over that meal in his home. But whatever Jesus said, whatever he said, Zacchaeus, whom Jesus had come to seek and save because he was lost, Zacchaeus left that meeting with Christ and said, half my goods I give away to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, because that's what he was, he says, I'm going to give them back four times as much. Did Christ give him a warning? Did Christ give him grace? Yeah, he may have given him the grace of the warning, so James is pushing us, pointing us toward repentance, doing some self-examination and turning from our, all of our greedy, selfish ways toward the way of Christ and sacrificial generosity. Then in verses 4 through 6, there's something else that I think is crucial for us to remember, and that is we have a perspective which will lead to justice there's a perspective which should lead to justice now i follow the first challenge with the need for us to turn to change to repent the second challenge is to treat people the way god would have for us to treat them why in the world would Verses 1 through 3 be such a, a condemnation and judgment on the wealthy who had stored up for themselves, not treasure for them, but the treasure of wrath. Well, verse 4, we find out why. There was injustice going on, okay? And so verse 4, James says, look, behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and has been withheld by you cries out against you. So this judgment is so fierce and harsh upon these wealthy because they have been acting unjustly. They have been oppressing and abusing the poor so much that some of them who needed that money for survival have begun to die. So here it is, happy Labor Day weekend. There's nothing in the world like an honest day's pay for an honest day's work. It's very fulfilling. It's very satisfying. In fact, uh, between services this morning, I was talking with a group. I'm not going to tell who they are, but this one lady was sharing an experience of where probably two or $250 bill in a restaurant and and this certain person stiffed them for the tip or actually left such a meager tip that this individual I'm talking about went out to the car and gave the money and said, 
you must need this as little as it is, you know. You know what it's like not to get paid? <laughs> to do work and to be expecting to get paid and not get paid. Something rises up in you that makes you angry, that makes you feel unjust, unjustly treated. It's, it's not right. And so these injustices which James refers to, the pay of the laborers, what does he say was happening with that injustice? It was crying out against them. It cries out against you. And the outcry reached who? Who did the outcry reach? God. Because he always sees and he always knows. And they had lived in luxury, hoarding up for themselves, and their hoarding was actually a fattening up for judgment. Now, what a picture that is. So picture, if you can, the Roanoke Stockyards, the sale barn in Carrollton. And what do you see every week here in West Georgia? Some of the leading cattle-producing counties, maybe in the country, I don't know. I only guess. And you got these fattened cows going to slaughter. That's the imagery James has. That's how strong and, and harsh this is. Why is it so severe? Because he, here's why. God cares deeply about how we treat people. In fact, God takes it personally. God takes it seriously and God takes it severely. And by nature, we try to hide from God, but it is impossible and if we do not obey his word, we are piling up spiritual and moral debt. So here's what James says. The cries of the oppressed, the cries of those victims rises up to God. Does that sound familiar to any of you? Because we have other places in the Bible which talk about God hearing the cries of those who are mistreated. For example, in Genesis 4, when Cain killed Abel, God came to him and said to him, as he called him out for his culpability and guilt, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Lord's Cain, you're called to account. I'm hearing that murder and injustice has happened, and it won't go unnoticed. In Exodus chapter 2. When God's people were in slavery, the Bible tells us that under Pharaoh and his oppression and his injustice, that God heard their outcry, he remembered his covenant, he paid attention to what they were going through, and he did something about it. And he raised up Moses to be a leader to lead his people out of slavery and into freedom. That wonderful story started out with God hearing the cries of oppressed victims. So, we need the perspective that reminds us that God takes how we treat other people personally. And we forget this. We think it's just on a horizontal level. This is just between me and you. It is never just between me and you. It is always God overseeing what is between me and you. Need more evidence? I've got a few more passages just to remind us of. Proverbs 14, 31. He who oppresses the poor reproaches his maker. You oppress people, 
you're unjust to people? That is a reproach to God. But the one who's gracious to the needy honors God. That's Proverbs 14.31. Or how about this one? Proverbs 17.5. He who mocks the poor, he who mocks the poor reproaches his maker. He who rejoices at calamity will not go unpunished. So beware when you say, ah, I'm so glad that happened to them and they had it coming, you know. If you rejoice at calamity, if you rejoice at calamity, you'll not go unpunished. That's Proverbs 75. Then Proverbs 22, 2. All of us have this in common. Every single one of us, rich and poor. It cuts across the board just like last week's points. The rich and poor have a common bond, and it's not that complex. The Lord is the maker of them, what? Of them all. So my perspective is I must account for God when it comes to human relationships. And I am called to love him with all of our heart, my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love my neighbor as myself, but for the Christian, it goes beyond that. We are to love and serve others as God has loved and served us. So let's back up a little bit and let's say that God has commanded the wealthy, and that's every single one of us. And we're certainly spiritually wealthy. God has directed us to use our resources, not for our own luxury, and not for our own selfish ends, but rather for his purposes. So this is a passage that calls us to turn from the world's idea of wealth and success and prosperity and turn towards God's plan for wealth and how his resources are to be used for his purposes. Well, what does God call us to do with our resources and our gifts and our talents? to glorify him and serve others. If we do that, he says, we will be blessed. And it's up to him to choose how he blesses us when we use what he's entrusted to us for his purposes. Now, what I want to close with is a message, really, that revolves around verse 6, because if you're like me, you fail the test. As I examine myself in verses 1 through 3, I've sinned and fallen short of his, of his glory. When I examine my life in view of 4, 5, and 6, I can think of times when I have mocked. I can think of times when I've mistreated. I can think of times when I've manipulated others. And all of us should be able to call to mind our times of mistreatment and injustice, if maybe not specifically in this area, in some area. So what are we to do? Well, does verse 6 remind you of anything? Let's go back to verse 6. He says to these wicked, wealthy people that they've actually put to death the righteous man. They've condemned the righteous person. They're innocent. And because of your selfishness, many of those people are dying. As they prayed, give us this day our daily bread, you were part of the problem and you withheld. 
So you've condemned and put to death the righteous man, and he does not resist you. Now, we should all be able to think of a circumstance and a situation in which there was one who was perfectly righteous. He was never oppressive. He was never unjust. But he always did what was right in sight of God and man and never sinned. In fact, he was the one who is righteous He's the one who is the judge. And all of us have put to death that righteous man. Now, obviously, I'm pointing to Christ. And the Bible says about him that when he went, in Isaiah 53, for example, he went through what was called oppressive injustice on the way to his death. He was mocked. He was bruised, he was beaten, he was tormented, he was tortured. They put a crown of thorns on his head to mock his so-called kingship, but he did not resist. What God is telling us through the gospel is that Jesus came into the plight of the oppressed. He came into the plight of those who suffer injustice. He's the ultimate innocent righteous one who was condemned wrongly and put to death in a brutal harsh way as God in Christ was being both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Are you still with me? Verse 6 of James 5, I believe, points all of us to where we find both mercy and justice and that's why verse 11 says the end of all God's dealings all of God's dealings end up proving that he is full of mercy and compassion and he's also full of justice because you and I at times cry out for justice we cry out for what's right but we must be careful to cry out for justice without mercy because if I cry out for justice and righteousness but I forget mercy, guess who comes out on the short end of that deal? None of us want justice when it's just justice that's coming our way without mercy and grace. Because what, what do all of us really deserve? What have we earned? What have we merited? All of us deserve the judgment that James is talking about. But we not, we, we not only have justice in that God the just is satisfied to look on Christ and pardon me, we have, we have mercy. So here's my point. In the cross of Christ, God satisfies justice and righteousness and also gives us mercy at the same time. That's where justice and mercy meet, right? And so you can't talk about repentance and justice and endurance without ultimately getting to Jesus where there was mercy great and great was free and there was pardon multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty. Where? At Calvary. So all of us by living life are constant recipients of mercy and compassion and are involved in this Quest for justice. So let me share a story to close with that I hope will help illustrate this on a much more personal level. 
And it's a tie-in to last week's illustration. Who was here last week? Some of this is going to oh, do an attendance check. <laughs> okay. Last week, I shared a little illustration talking about Donna Kirk. She teased, man, I'm tearing this up. She teased me a little bit before she died about back in the day, I'd pick up my wife, Tracy. She was my girlfriend at the time. I'd pick her up at the elementary school and, oh, y'all look so cute back then, y'all were. And so I would. I would pick up Tracy where her mom worked at the elementary school, and then we would go to high school together and Sometimes we'd stop and pick up four or five other people, but that's a whole other story. So this week as I worked through this, I kind of still had that on my mind, and I'm going to share with you something that happened one morning that I think illustrates mercy and justice, and I'll make it quick. On one of those school day mornings, I was in my F-150 pickup, and I drove up to the elementary school to pick up my girlfriend, but I realized pretty quickly she wasn't there. Maybe her mom's car wasn't there, and I saw from a distance it's not there. So I completely do a 180 because I'm running late to school. So in my truck, I do a 180, and as I do a 180 and, and make my turn, I plow directly into a chain-link fence because the sun is so bright, it's shining directly in my face, and I don't see the fence till I hit it. <laughs> it was bad. And my brother Jake was with me, and I was, and I was with me, and we look around, and we don't see any witnesses. <laughs> I put it in reverse, and I scratched off, and man, we were gone. We were off to the high school, five minutes away, and my heart's beating fast, just hoping and praying and knowing that nobody saw me. Because <laughs> I can imagine the bill for that fence. I got to high school, I walked in my homeroom class, when I sat down at my desk, right there was a piece of paper that said, Neil Aubrey called Pat Lipham, he's the principal at the elementary school. I said, man, how in the world did somebody see me and know that I was, you know, and I would have got away with, with it too if it hadn't been for that meddling janitor. The, the janitor saw me and knew me, told on me anyway. Call Pat Lipham. So I go to the office. We don't have cell phones. And I get in the phone and say, uh, Mr. Lipham, this is Neil Aubrey. Neil Aubrey, did you, did you run into the fence up here at the elementary school? Uh, yes. Yes, sir, I did. Uh, I, sure am, I sure am sorry. He says, all right. He says, I just wanted to make sure that, that we were understanding and clear here that you're the one that did it. And he said, he said we're going to take care of it. We're going to take care of it. But uh, I just want to let you know that, that somebody told me that it was you and, and wanted to confirm that it was you and that you admitted and so forth and so on. And I hung up the phone and went back. Now, the longer I think about that, the more I've realized I got mercy but somebody still had to pay. And somebody fixed that fence. And the older I get, the more I realize, you know who paid? The taxpayers paid. We all paid. Somebody all, listen, somebody, when people get mercy, somebody always, somebody always pays. Do we just get off the hook? Does God just sweep it under the rug? Just says, yeah, you know, boys will be boys. No, God has been just 
in that what we deserve to get, Jesus paid. And here's what you do. You receive mercy from God knowing that Jesus paid, and then when you experience injustice in life, you know that if you forgive that person, and if you're compassionate with that person, that person didn't get off the hook. Remember, God always sees. But the difference is when we want somebody to pay when we're hurt and we're struggling to forgive, we look at the cross and that's where we say, ah, that's how I can be merciful and strive for justice is that I remember Jesus already paid it all for all of us. And all to him we owe because sin had left a crimson stain. But what? But he, and he washed it white as snow. He is full of mercy. He's full of compassion. And he's also a just and holy God. And I know right now we struggle with justice, but in the end, you rest assured justice and righteousness will be served fully and completely by God himself. And the cross proves that that's going to happen. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for your love for each one of us. Thank you that at the end of the day, the conclusion of the whole story and all of your dealings is that we should say with clarity and with boldness, yes, there is judgment and justice, but praise the Lord, there is mercy. And you are full of mercy and you're full of compassion. May each of us receive that graciously and generously and may we pass that on graciously and generously. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Let's stand and sing. Hey, may he have his way today in my life and your life. As we sing, you come. Pray at this altar, pray with me. If there's a decision you're struggling with, a confession, to, to, to this church that you need to make or to accept Christ. As we sing, you come. We invite you to come today.